Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton will be dropping the speed limit on residential streets to 40 kilometers per hour. The federal government is blasting Ontario over the layoffs at Bombardier's railway car plant in Thunder Bay, and a go-bus driver in Hamilton was viciously assaulted by a passenger, and the union want answers. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. If you're driving around town today, be advised that uh, you're going to have to start driving more slowly from here on in. Hamilton's going to be dropping the speed limit on residential streets. Uh, Jason Farr is the counselor for Ward 2 at downtown Hamilton. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update on this. Jay, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, we just lost the call. Okay. Uh, anyway, we'll get that back in just a couple of seconds. The, uh, the motivation for this is, uh, I, I think, a discussion that we've had on this program and others have had around the community uh, about safe speeds. And uh, there are some, I guess, pilot projects or some situations in other parts of the city where they've actually tried this out on a, on a trial basis, and it seemed to be working, uh, notwithstanding the fact that some people seem to get upset about it. We'll talk about that in just a couple of seconds. I think we have the counselor back. Jay, are you with us? Yes, sorry about that. My cheek hung up on you. Oh, okay. <laughs> it happens. It happens. Yeah. Uh, give me the, actually in, in a roundabout way, you were kind of the forerunner for this uh, because of what you guys have done down in the north end of the city with the uh, speed limits, reduced speed limits in residential areas. It was was that at least part of the motivation for what the, the entire council adopting this idea? Well, I think it uh, spurred the interest of a lot of my... In fact, I, I'm going to go on out on a limb and say it'll be a unanimous decision at ratification on uh, Friday morning at Council. It was certainly unanimous to go 40K in, on all residential streets and minor collectors at Public Works yesterday, Bill. But yeah, five years ago, the North End Traffic Management Plan pilot, five-year pilot on 30K began. And, uh, you know, there were some uh, good, robust, neighborhood engagement uh, prior to and then in that first year I held a few meetings uh, just asking uh, residents how they felt about it are they are they um, conforming are they comfortable are they getting used to it and uh, certainly five years later you know you don't hear boo and I believe uh, it's been a very successful pilot and one that like I say a lot of my colleagues and, and mayors of the past have been watching but did there was pushback at the time though wasn't there yeah, I think, you know, it was pretty significant. I, I, all things considered, no one had ever attempted 30K as a residential speed limit in any neighborhood in the city uh, before. Uh, it was a different mandate then. We didn't have a Vision Zero. We didn't talk as much then. And when I say then, even two, three years before the pilot, right? So the pilot's just about done after five years. But, you know, the lead up uh, had some robust engagement, too. And, you know, so it was different. It was change. And whenever we have, do something different or, 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 or adopt some change or talk about adopting change, there's, there's consternation and concern. And that's perfectly understandable and absolutely appreciated. But again, uh, over time, and it was probably within a year, it seemed for the most part, just about anybody I spoke to in the North End seemed adjusted. There are significant statistics here to sub substantiate what you guys are doing here, too. Um, I, I know that neighborhood safety, obviously, is part of the motivation, and we talked to a lot of those neighbors down in the North End when you started this program some years ago. Uh, and I know that Council Marula has done the same sort of thing on Kenilworth Avenue, just at the bottom of the, uh, the Kenilworth Access, uh, where Kenilworth is now 40 kilometers all the way down. Uh, because there's a number of schools uh, right there, and the young kids, of course, are going to be on the streets. Uh, but there, there are statistics that indicate that even slowing down, even if there is a, a, a any kind of an accident or an infraction or anything like that, uh, the chances of survival are much better, even by dropping it by about even five or ten kilometers per hour. We're told. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that. And actually, that was in the report um, yesterday and something that we certainly have <clears throat> talked about over the years when we talk about, you know, what what reductions in speed equate to in terms of the fatalities of, you know, pedestrians and, and vehicles. And the World Health Organization did a study, I don't even know how long ago, Bill, but if you're doing 50 on a residential street, uh, if there's a collision between an auto and a pedestrian, there's a 70% chance of a fatality. Knock that down to 40, and it's below 30%. So absolutely, there's a correlation uh, to speed and uh, uh, fatal uh, injuries uh, with respect to pedestrian auto collisions. And, and you know, you know, a lot of that has to do with braking. The faster you're going, the longer it takes to get in control on a brake. Um, the slower you go, obviously, you're in more control if you need to to stop suddenly. So the, uh, there's a there's a lot of factors involved. But the World Health Organization has been saying this forever: if you go slower and recommending forever uh, going slower uh, and reducing that uh, that uh, fatal. Uh, you know, issue uh, with pedestrians and vehicles. This actually kind of rides right in and segues with a, a report that you guys dealt with a couple of weeks ago uh, about the number of, of pedestrian uh, coll- collisions, whether it's, well, some cyclists, I guess, were involved in, in some of the statistics as well. But an awful lot of them, and I think a, a, a very troublesome a number of those, actually happened where it was legal to cross. I mean, that, that crosswalks and, and stoplights and things of this nature, uh, which talks, I speak, I, I guess, more importantly to driver error than anything else. Slowing down is going to be key here to saving lives. Yeah, absolutely. Speed uh, and, and uh, you know, pedestrian activity, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just pretty much, con- it, it, it's basic science. I mean, the slower you go, the less uh, chance in the event of a, a, a collision. Uh, that you're going to see a death. And, you know, I want to correct myself there. I'm just looking at the report, Bill, the WHO, World Health Organization, reported that an adult pedestrian has a 20% risk hmm. of dying if struck by a vehicle traveling 60K. And that's greatly reduced if uh, you're at 50 or 40K, uh, uh, a much better rate of uh, survival. So so I apologize for that. The 70%, I'm not sure where I got that, but I checked it as talking with you. Well, it's a, even better news. That's a, that's a good thing. Uh, we have yeah, also, sure. of course, uh, council has in the last couple of years, of course, uh, uh, put in special uh, speeding limits uh, and uh, traveling limits near schools, and that's going to mm-hmm. be impacted by this new bylaw too, isn't it? Yeah, two-part uh, recommendation unanimously received by Public Works, uh, worked on by many councillors over many years and, of course, some fine staff, particularly since 2015. The first recommendation is the 40K across all residential streets, across all neighborhoods, which is a program that we're going to implement uh, 45 neighborhoods in 2019 and within the next three years, all 200 and change neighborhoods in the city. So across the city on residential streets, 40K, and then Part B of the recommendation was these designated school zones, which are very important as well. And those those local roads and minor collectors within uh, 150 meters of any school boundary throughout the city would be 30K. Uh, so so uh, you're slowing down even further in our school uh, zones. And all of this is uh, in conjunction with, uh, what was it, back in May 2017, the province passed Bill 65 to allow communities to choose whether or not we want to do uh, to do these things. And so obviously we've, uh, as Hamiltonians have heard from many, I think there's about 700 requests annually from residents just to our transportation and operations and traffic maintenance division and of course you know councillors mccaddy and myself long before 2015 uh, since they've been monitoring these calls of residents concerned with speeds and wanting traffic safety on their residential streets have been doing things like 
you know, public budgeting. I've had two public budgets, so two million, one million each, uh, over the course of the last five, six years that have specifically focused on neighborhood safety. And so implementing based on neighborhood uh, suggestions and ultimately neighborhood voted on projects uh, with the $2 million of taxpayer dollars, um, traffic mitigation and public safety and pedestrian safety measures have been enacted. So that that's that's apart from what our, our traffic ops people are hearing. So that there's there's no doubt, and I think that's why we're the, there's the unanimity on this. There really wasn't all that much of a debate, more accolades than, than debate at Public Works yesterday because it's clear we're hearing more and more from our residents that they, they want safer residential streets. They want safer streets in general, but residential streets particularly. And Bill, you know, I, I said this back when we started year one of the, the North End Traffic Management Plan, so the five-year 30K pilot. And I, and I, when people would have issue, I'd say, how fast are you going on those residential streets? Because the reality is, you know, people who drive uh, conservatively and uh, conscious and uh, of, uh, you know, public safety through residential streets should, probably aren't going more than 40K anyway. When you're driving through a residential street, you've got, a, a, you know, cars parked, children playing ball hockey, people uh, walking or out cutting the grass, and you're closer to home, and you tend to go slower. Unfortunately, not everybody does, and it just takes a couple of bad eggs speeding through residential streets to get those calls up to about 700 annually to city staff saying we need to do something about I, it. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I can go back to my experience a number of years ago when I was on council, uh, and, and you get on a daily basis, a number of phone calls into your office as, as the councillor for the downtown area. And, and a lot of that may be about garbage collection or taxes or snow clearing in the winter, whatever the case might be. But it seemed to me that the overwhelming majority of calls uh, to a, to a councillor's office are about neighborhood safety, traffic, uh, cars going too fast, cars running stoplights, things of that nature, too fast around school zones. It's, a, it's, it's obviously one of the top priorities for constituents. Absolutely. I, and, you know, Councillor Danko, I think, had mentioned it yesterday. Some of the new, new councillors uh, uh, have, uh, you know, it hadn't taken long for them to pick up on, on average what they're hearing most uh, from their residents on. And, and, and they, they agree. It's uh, traffic speeds, traffic safety, pedestrian safety. And, and it was like that in your day. It was like that, you know, decades before. And it, and it continues to this day. It is definitely, uh, you know, I mean, I don't have the statistics, but... Uh, for Ward 2 and this councillor, FAR, uh, it's parking, it's neighbourhood uh, uh, safety uh, issues, and, and traffic uh, speeds and enforcement are, are, you know, the tops in terms of the, you know, engagement that we get on a daily basis. Now, what about the other roads, uh, what we call arterial roads? Uh, any, any impact on this at all? So arterials would stay at 50, but, you know, you referenced right at the top, uh, Councillor Marula uh, was the first. So, so Kenilworth actually isn't a residential. It's a, either a, a collector or, or, or I believe it's an arterial road. And he was the first to change that uh, arterial road across the board limit from 50 to 40. He received a petition. He answered the call to his residents. Uh, he worked very closely with Councillor Tom Jackson. Um, you've heard Councillor Whitehead in the past say, you know, if we're going to change things down below, we need to engage and and uh, you know, speak with the the representatives above, and that's certainly something Councilor Marula did. Councilor Jackson uh, was uh, went at it in Ward Six with a bit of trepidation. That first ever arterial change to forty, uh, however, uh, it's worked out very well for both. And uh, I think uh, for other councillors, when when they saw that, uh, you know, I've changed some 
arterials to 40 based on public engagement and requests and across the city we have we we see that so that would still be case by case but that was also one of the things i asked in committee yesterday i said edward you know part of what we're doing with across the board residential 40k max from 50k because bill 65 of the province says we can is to stop this ad hoc action from councillors. We know that causes consternation. It causes greater costs. It puts residents uh, in queues, and they, you know, it, it, it causes some consternation when you're kind of waiting on timing and funding and approvals and all those things. So we no longer are going ad hoc on residential streets, but we're still ad hoc. And this is what I mentioned yesterday on changing some arterials that just make sense, like a, like a Gene Street, for example, uh, major commercial corridors. Uh, areas of arterials that see schools. There were a few one-off motions actually yesterday that, that are asking during school times to, to go 40K. So there are some obvious uh, areas. And so over the course of the next two and a half year uh, changeover of residential streets, staff have also advised they'll be a little more formal and they're going to re- report back on where it also makes sense on some arterial roads. Others, not, not going to happen. But somewhere it makes sense, uh, we'll, we'll be looking at it a little more holistically rather than this ad hoc approach. So I think that's that's pretty important, too. But, you know, years ago, it started with Kenilworth. I don't know how many arterials or minor collectors or, or major collectors we have now that are 40K, but it keeps growing. And, and nothing prevents in the time that uh, it, it takes two and a half years or three years for staff to come back with something a little more holistic and fulsome to have a council or two or more uh, still do that, you know, make those ad hoc motions because, you know, the demand is there. As you did with the north end changes uh, down there, and I'm sure it's going to happen with all of the councillors now that this is going to be done citywide, uh, you are going to get pushback. We are going to get people that are going to say, hey, I don't like this. But is, is it fair to say, based on your past experience, that the, probably the majority of people that are going to be upset about this are not people that live in those neighborhoods. They're people that are passing through uh, that, that are upset. I mean, we still, I think it's human nature, I guess, with an awful that you want to get from point A to point B as fast as you can. And that that's really part yeah. of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, it's a very, that's a really good question. And, and in terms of the observations we're, make, we're making with the pilot, because the pilot is something you study and it's five years at 30K in the North End, it's not everybody that's just passing through that's going too fast on residential streets. Sometimes it's your friends and neighbors within that neighborhood. So you got to get the message out both locally, hyper locally. And, you know, across the board with this program that, that, that we're running and engagement, of course, is, is going to be part of it, neighborhood to neighborhood, particularly in the school changes that we're doing in the 30K. But, um, it, you know, and, uh, and then, of course, other wards have more of challenges with cut throughs. I think Ward 2 is the leader in that category, uh, cut through residential streets. Ward 1 sees a lot of cut through residential streets as well. Uh, and, and some wards still are impacted by it, but certainly not as, as greatly. Uh, but it is, there's definitely an issue, um, uh, you know, even across the city uh, with residents uh, seeing this and recognizing this and really having problems with it. And you can understand why. Look at some strangers flying down without any, without any courtesy at all of the kids and the seniors and, the, you know, the, the, the passive lifestyle we're living here in this, in this residential area. And it's, it is a problem. No well, it is. And, and I know we're going to address some board enforcement, but we'll do that next week when the Chief's on our program. Uh, Jay, thanks as always for the update on this. Really appreciate the time this morning. 
Okay, not 40K yet. For those paying attention, uh, we have to ratify Friday, and it doesn't count until we put the signs up on the perimeters of the first 45 neighborhoods in 2019. And we'll let them know when that happens. Thanks again, Councillor. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Councillor Jason Farr. Uh, by the way, uh, he referenced that provincial legislation that allowed the cities and other municipalities to do this as well. Part of that legislation also jacks up the fines for speeding. If you were uh, 20 clicks over the uh, speed limit before, I think it was a $40 fine, it's uh, now 95 bucks. So slow down. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, federal government and the Ontario government are at loggerheads. Boy, there's something new, right? Uh, and this time it's about Bombardier. Uh, of course, we know about the layoffs that Bombardier announced just a couple of days ago. And uh, both levels of government are blaming the other guy for this. Uh, Marvin Ryder from the, the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University joins us here in studio to talk about this. How are you doing this morning? I'm great, thank you, Bill. Before we do the Bombardier thing, sure. you and I were just having a, a quick discussion before uh, the segment started here uh, about the Premier's meeting in Saskatchewan yesterday. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came out of that was uh, Premier Jason Kenney saying, we're going to eliminate these barriers, we're going to have free trade here in Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. um, that's great news, isn't it? Except it's, the, what, how many times now have they tried to do this? Right. Well, Doug Ford said the same thing. I've never seen so many premiers united around a table trying to, to work to eliminate trade barriers. Uh, premier Mo of Saskatchewan said the same thing. Bill, I don't think your average listener knows that two years ago, July 1st, 2017, there was something signed called the Canada Free Trade Act. Now, when you hear free trade, you think it means between Canada and another country, but this act was between the provinces saying we're going to work to eliminate barriers between us. Now, this was two years ago, Bill, and as they signed it, premiers could put forward any exception, meaning I want free trade, but I don't necessarily want Ontario wine to be affected. 132 exemptions were that's, put that's forward. longer than the bill, isn't Longer it? <laughs> than the bill itself. So... Yesterday's meeting, great that you're saying those things, but where's the proof in the fire? And when I say trade barriers, Bill, I should also be clear that these are basically inconsistencies between legislation in the different provinces. In other words, let's suppose I am an Ontario wine producer and I want to sell wine in British Columbia. They may have a different rule about labeling the wine, or they may have a different rule about uh, designating vintages. And what we need is to harmonize the legislation. And the funny thing is that a a person competing from outside Canada can come into this market, in some cases, much more easily than we can going to another province. And so I love what they're saying. And and yesterday I did a segment with CTV News Mm -hmm. in which I said from from Premier Moe's lips to God's ears, I I hope this is the time that it happens. But 37 previous times they've made these announcements and nothing serious has ever really happened. Well, because there are tariffs involved, so there's revenue that's going to be involved. And the other thing is uh, we've seen this happen, especially in the last number of years, uh, premiers have their own little turf wars, and mm-hmm. uh, they're going to say, you know, don't don't mess with my wine industry, don't mess with my maple syrup industry, and, and they've all got their 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 sacred cows, really. Yeah. So I mean, again, simply uh, say I'm the premier of Ontario, I would really love to make sure that Ontario wines can compete fairly in British Columbia. But that also means the British Columbia wines can compete parallelly in Ontario. Oh, no, no, I don't want the British Columbia wines here. I just want our wines to go there. This is the Donald Trump view of the world, and it just doesn't work that way. So, I, I, you know, they could be serious, as we know, this premier's meeting. Uh, I believe it is six of the ten premiers lean to a big C conservative, mm-hmm. and they, they claim that they're united. So maybe, you know, maybe this will happen. But I am skeptical. Well, and with due course, too. I have your right to be that way. All right, what's going on with Bombardier? Well, let's, let's talk about Bombardier. So two months ago in May, Bombardier, in its quarterly announcement, said, by the way, we don't have any work booked 
for our Thunder Bay plant uh, after January 1st, 2020. We're working on uh, two projects, uh, both for Metrolinks, if you will. One is for TTC subway cars and the other was for uh, streetcars. And when those are all filled by the end of this year, we're, we're looking for business. And we just thought we'd warn you, you know, this was May. If we don't find any new business, we'll probably have to lay off employees. Bombardier in Thunder Bay builds these cars. They have employ 1,100 people. It's the single largest private sector employer in Thunder Bay. So this would be like looking at Stelco or DeFasco. So goes it. Mm-hmm. So goes the local community. Everyone was duly concerned. Uh, two months have gone by, nothing changed, and so yesterday Bombardier uh, gave layoff notices to 550 of the 1,100 workers, half the workforce, effective again at the end of this year, not effective today, effective at the end of this year, uh, which is the prudent thing to do. Look, if I don't think you're going to have a job, I need to give you as much notice as possible so you don't go out and buy a house or don't decide to have a child. But almost immediately after the announcement, we had uh, announcements from both the federal government and the provincial government that these layoffs layoffs weren't needed. And you go, well, what, what, what do you mean? Well, Ottawa is sitting on a big pile of infrastructure money, something like $15, $20 billion of infrastructure money that it wants to spend on things like transit infrastructure. And Doug Ford, even though after he was elected, he was a little lukewarm on transit, had in his most recent budget announced that they too wanted to put money into transit. Uh, so, great, why haven't you placed an order for some more cars? Whether it's Hamilton's LRT cars, mm-hmm. you know, that you could order those now, and that would help Bombardier out, or whatever it is, subway cars, something like this. Uh, and so both blame the other. Uh, Ottawa said, we were prepared to spend the money, but it's actually got to go through Metrolinks, and Metrolinks won't issue a purchase order. Doug Ford says, no, we'd issue a purchase order. You just didn't commit this. Letters were exchanged yesterday. I, I'm actually hopeful that in the next couple of weeks, at least for the short term, we might be able to avoid these layoffs with an order from Metrolinks. But one more footnote on this. Obviously, Bombardier cannot simply wait for orders from Ontario to keep these people employed. That might buy you six months a year with a big order from Metrolinx. Bombardier needs to be selling these train cars in other markets, and they used to sell them in the United States. Um, for the, the last operative word is used to. Used to. Uh, uh, the last couple of years, those orders seem to have dried up, and that's the fear about Buy America stuff. Now, again, while we were renegotiating the free trade, well, look, if we don't have free trade, da 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 I think now that that's all behind them, and also Bombardier has fixed some quality and delivery problems they were having two years ago, that caused the city of Ottawa to buy their LRT cars from a competitor, European competitor called Alstom. Now that that's all fixed, get out there and get selling. So hopefully Ontario and Canada can come together in the short term to buy some more cars and keep this plant going for some number of months. But the long-term Bombardier, you have to go out and do this. And, uh, and that's the challenge facing us. Do they actually have their act together? Because these guys have been in the news for all the wrong reasons for about the last five or six years. Uh, not just with this plant, but the aerospace section yeah. as well. Well... So the Bombardier story is a story of a company that uh, overextended itself. It wanted to be big in many different things and took a small number of resources and just stretched themselves too thin. So it was about a year, year and a half ago that the new CEO, they fired the previous CEO for getting them too stretched, said, look, we're going to focus on our train business and our uh, private jet business. Uh, personal jet business. Uh, We are going to get out of commercial aviation. So the plane that you might remember they wound up sort of selling, if you will, to Airbus. They also sold a division just recently to another company, Mitsubishi. 
That is them getting rid of these distractions so they can focus. And I will tell you that two years ago, two years ago, the story about Bombardier in these cars, these train cars, was uh, poor delivery. City of, of Toronto was waiting for something. They actually hadn't mm-hmm. got the car, bada, bada, bada. Well, now, here's the good news. I think it's something like 132 out of 200 cars have been delivered. They're perfectly back on schedule to deliver all those cars by the end of this year. The City of Toronto, the the Toronto Transit Commission are very happy with these cars. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, in fact, oddly enough, if there's a transit issue right at the moment, it is with Ottawa. These Alstom cars that they bought are a brand new technology, and they haven't quite been working just the way everybody expected. But the problems seem to have been fixed in the train part, in the train part of Bombardier. Mm-hmm. The plane part is still undergoing some turbulence, if you will, but the train part is. So, yes, and hopefully, again, that's two years ago they were having the big problems. We have memories. We can forget about this over time if you can start getting back on the quality train, and and I think there's great hope for them. Well, I, that's what I was going to ask you about. I mean, I, I don't know about the uh, you know the, the private jet thing. I, I don't know how many more millionaires we're getting in Canada these days that want to have those things. But you would think with the talk about public transit, and it's seemingly a, a – uh, more of a, a concentrated effort by both levels, federal and provincial governments, towards public transit, mm-hmm. that these guys have got to have a rosy future. I mean, obviously, the Hamilton LRT thing eventually is going to get going, and we're going to have to order cars. I, I assume there are other cities that are going to be on side with this kind of technology, too. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, the big one is Toronto, because the, the uh, if you remember the, the provincial liberals, and I know they're no longer in office, but they were going to spend $35 billion, mm-hmm. half of it in Toronto, the other half of it in other cities in Ontario. Now, Doug Ford says he's committed to a a transit plan. He hasn't quite put numbers on it. One imagines it's of a slightly smaller scale. But when I say slightly smaller, I think he'd still be looking at 15 to 20 billion dollars. And and some of this is for the construction of rail lines or construction of subway lines. But once you build the lines, you've got to put cars on them. So, you know, I'm, I am hopeful that Bombardier will get some more offers. But it can't just be Ontario. They can't have a plant that just services Ontario because you'll get the feast and famine. And, and, Bill, this is actually a story we know very well here in Hamilton. Our top two private sector employers are Stelco and DeFasco. But the third largest pri- private sector employer is National Steelcar. And this feast and famine, uh, we call it cycle in business, you see played out at National Steelcar. When they have an order for cars, they've got full employment and they employ more than 1,000 people. But periodically they have to put layoff notices until they can get Mm -hmm. the next order. Uh, Generally speaking, they have enough business that we don't see those layoff notices very often, but every now and again we do. And that's that's just the the challenge when you are tied to this sort of one specific thing. In our case, they're train cars. In this case, these are more passenger-type cars for trains and subways, but uh, you can't rely on just one person to buy them. Are, are they competitive? I mean, from a price standpoint and reliability, because I know yeah. uh, these aren't the only guys that make this stuff. <laughs> no, no. although it is, a, again, a rather thin market. There's only about three or four competitors in this market worldwide. This is why Bombardier wanted to focus on it, because they do play a good game. And I would say absolutely. Two years ago, I wouldn't have sat here and said they were as reliable. They seemed to have a delivery problem. It was never that the cars didn't work correctly, a quality problem, but it was a delivery problem. You promised delivery on July July 1st, and you deliver on September 1st, and that's not good. But they seem to have got that fixed, again, by focusing their resources. Rather than being scattered across so many things, they've decided to focus their resources. And, uh, but... They're not getting the orders from the United States 
Ontario can do something short term, but I wouldn't tell you they're off the hook until they can start generating orders in the United States. And whether that again needs Christia Freeland and Justin Trudeau to make another trek to to uh, Washington D.C. and remind them, you know, free trade works both ways, Mr. Trump. Um, I am hopeful though, because uh, the other big cities in North America, whether it's Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, they're all talking about transit as a key part of their future and eliminating gridlock. So. I think it's a matter of when, not if, that uh, Bombardier will get those orders. That's uh, way not too deeply, I hope, into the political end of this thing. I mean, because there's a lot of finger-pointing going on this sure. week because of this, be the federal government, liberal federal government, and, of course, the conservative Ontario government here. Uh, I suggest a pox on both their houses because because uh, this is, first of all, there's an acrimonious relationship between these two. So, I mean, you know, there's... You can cut a deal if you want to cut a deal. Sure. I mean, because they're going to say, well, you didn't do the paperwork. You didn't make an official application for this. And they'll say, yes, we did, but you didn't make an official application that the money was available. Right. And they're going back and forth. But I, I'll use as a reference point, uh, back in 2009, I guess it was, when uh, Dalton McGiddy and Stephen Harper got together to save the auto industry. They cobbled that thing together pretty darn quick because mm-hmm. they understood that, hell, timing is, is important here. You can do it if you want to do it. Well, and I think, and and look, Bill, I don't I don't have an inside track, so I am clearly speculating here. But I think why Bombardier issued these layoff notices six months ahead of time and did it yesterday was precisely to trigger that kind of an effort. That they were getting tired over since May and June and early July of the two parties. Well, no, no, we we, we got the money. Oh yeah, we got the. Oh yeah, we got we've got. And but nobody put the order out. So by putting the layoff notices, they put the fat in the fire. And I think you will see the two sides come together. Now, uh, yesterday was not the most productive in terms of healing that relationship. The (laughs) federal infrastructure minister released a letter that he had sent the provincial infrastructure minister in May saying, we've got all this money and we're just waiting for your projects, please let us know. And yesterday he sent virtually the same letter to the same minister saying the same thing. Uh, but in case you lost the first one, here's <laughs> here's the second one. Uh, I don't think the letter itself is going to trigger this, but there are microphones in front of people. Doug Ford was at this minister's meeting. He was looking for a, you know, a slap everybody on the back kind of a session. Look, we're all conservatives united to, to help Canada, and this was not the story he wanted to have to deal with. I'm I'm 99% certain that something will move in the next couple of weeks, and, and then you know who will take credit for it. That again will be a political issue. They'll both, well, both try to take will. credit, and they'll both try to take blame. And but I I think because of these layoff notices, uh, in this situation, the right thing is going to happen for those workers. Okay, crystal ball time. If that does happen, if mm-hmm. they do finally say, okay, let's finally try to talk about this, and I agree with you. I think the time is nigh. I mean, there's a federal election coming up. These guys want to look uh, like they're trying to do something and. So there's a possibility that's going to happen. Uh, with that in mind, uh, do these people actually uh, fulfill these layoff notices, or are these guys going to find enough work that, hey, they're going to say, hey, forget it, we're good now? Yeah, well, that's the great thing about a layoff notice that is given to you months in advance. It, th- situations can change. What the company is doing is hedging its bet. If it doesn't get any, and I want to be clear, if it doesn't get any more business, then there is no reason to keep these people employed starting January 1st, 2020. So they're absolutely correct to issue these layoff notices. But they're always with the caveat that unless things change. And if suddenly we got some more orders, we'll reserve the right to rescind them. We've seen, for instance, in the case of GM with some layoff notices where Mm -hmm. they issue a thousand layoff notices, but they actually only execute 300 of them. It turns out some, some situations had changed. But they're right to do it, again, because 
Jobs are related to people's lives. Based on having a job, I might buy a new home. I might decide to have a child. I might decide to get married or take this once-in-a-lifetime trip. And if I had known that I wouldn't have a job, I wouldn't have spent the money that way. So that it's the right thing for an employer to let them know that your job is on tenterhooks and they may not be here. But also, I'm sure Bombardier is out looking for work, and I'm pretty sure that Ontario and the federal government will come riding to the rescue, not with a bailout. And I also want to be clear, this is, no one's asking for a bailout here. If you're going to order these train cars, do it now, because if you wait until February of next year, we may not have the employed workforce to be able to do this. So, hey, you know, fats in the fire. Well, that's because Bombardier already got their bailout a few years ago, didn't they? Yeah, that was the corporate thing. This yeah. wasn't specifically for Thunder Bay. This was a corporate one. Again, because they had extended themselves so much, they didn't have enough equity. They had too much debt for the equity they had. So the Fed, to a small extent, the federal government only put in about $100 million, but it was the province of Quebec between both the province and the um, the provincial pension fund, the QPP, I think they put in nearly $2 billion into that company, either loaning it to them or buying shares in that company. But look, again, things are much better state than they were a few years ago, and specifically in Thunder Bay. This is just a situation. Nobody wants a bailout. We want you, if you're going to place orders, place them now. Don't wait. Is this really just part of the cycle of business, though? I mean, you're going to have peaks and valleys and ups and downs. You mentioned National Steel Car. I mean, back in the, I guess it was in the 80s, I mean, that place almost went out of business. Mm -hmm. uh, because at that time, the federal government was, well, they were tearing up rail tracks at that time. You know, nobody's using trains anymore. Well, mm -hmm. we've changed our minds, and these guys are, are doing pretty well now as a result. Right. Well, and part of that, Bill, <laughs> talk about the circle of life, is the whole issue around pipelines. So we've got all this oil they're trying to take out of the mm -hmm. ground in Alberta. We'd like to ship it to you by pipeline. That's the most efficient efficient way to do it and actually has the least amount of trouble associated with it. But, oh, oh we don't want to build any pipelines, so what are we going to do? I know pundits say leave the oil in the ground, but that's not happening. They're extracting the oil and they're sending it by train cars. Uh, the, the province of Alberta has an order for something like, for something like 100,000 new train cars. This is the province of Alberta. That's how desperate they were. They couldn't wait for the private sector. We'll buy train cars. We'll lease them back to you. Anything to move that oil and keep our economy moving. So uh, right now is a great time to be at National Steel Car. But you're right. There is a cycle to this. And when one order gets filled, if there's not another order to backfill behind. It's, a, again, the issue in Oshawa, the plant that they're going to close yeah. in Oshawa. Uh, they're selling cars. They used to make a million of these cars a year. Now they're making 100,000. It's just not economically viable to keep the plant going and and we have changed our mind about what we're going to buy, so you, you shift, and that uh, there is this ebb and flow. Marvin Ryder, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, terrible story that we told you about here earlier on uh, CHML News. A GO bus driver in Hamilton this week was uh, assaulted, violently assaulted, by a passenger, apparently who allegedly refused to pay the fare. Uh, he's still in the hospital, by the way, with a serious head injury. The union is wanting answers. The community, for that matter, is wanting answers. Uh, as well, there's a companion story here that uh, we just uh, uncovered uh, the other day. Uh, it's an analysis by the Globe and Mail that found that thousands of Canadian transit passengers were a target of sexual assault. As a matter of fact, the number they feel is maybe around 4,000 in that period of time between 2013 and 2017, sexually assaulted and targets of sexual assault while riding on buses. Something needs to change here, clearly. Joining us to talk about this is uh, John Donano, who is the uh, ATU Canadian president. Uh, first of all, on, on such a, a, a terrible news day with these sorts of things going on, John, I'm really glad you had time to join us today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, and I'm glad to be here. 
as we said, the uh, the, the go bus driver that uh, we referenced earlier is still in hospital. We're told he's going to be okay eventually, but it's going to take some time. Uh, sadly, though, John, uh, his national president, uh, this is not news to you. I mean, you uh, sadly hear these sorts of stories uh, much more than you want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a very, very common occurrence in the in the transit industry. Um, the reality is that most of these incidences go unreported unless they're of this severe nature. There are operator assaults um, every day in this country from coast to coast. Well, I can tell you anecdotally, uh, as we've done programs about this, and, and we've talked with uh, representatives of Hamilton Street Oil, the HSR here, uh, and you're, you're right. I mean, the number of incidents that occur here is, is staggering, really. And, and you're right. A lot of the time, police are not involved in it, so it goes unnoticed. Sometimes reports are written. Sometimes they're not. Uh, and that's the physical abuse. Uh, there's obviously verbal abuse. There's a number of things that are going on. Uh, and you, you, I guess a, a driver just doesn't know what's going to happen in situations like that. No, the driver is not aware of it. And so one of the things that we have called out for is a national, um, a national transit strategy. And in that uh, strategy, we're talking about a Transit Operator and, and Pedestrian Protection Act. We need all levels of government, particularly the federal government, to step up and start protecting not only our operators, but the riding public. So in that, we're asking for a number of things. We're asking for uh, national legislation to protect the people, of course, uh, a national study of violence, and a database uh, to capture how many passengers and operators are being assaulted. Um, the legislation um, would help prevent assaults, um, would encompass a risk assessment, a risk reduction plan, um, but it's going to take some money and it's going to take some commitment from all levels of government, and in particular the transit agencies. John, when these incidents occur, and, and I just mentioned the numbers of passengers that have been assaulted, uh, and that's staggering. And, and by the way, uh, I'm sure you would agree that that, that 4,000 uh, number that the Globe and Mail referenced here is probably underreported because a lot of the time people just don't bother to report these things. So I'm, I'm sure the number is probably a lot higher than that is. But that's a significant number in and of itself. Do the do the do the transit systems, the people that operate these, uh, uh, do they react appropriately? Do they do what they're supposed to do when something like this happens and, and is reported? Well, so, you know, the employers, the transit authorities, under the Occupational Health and Safety Acts, have to take every reasonable measure to protect its workers from, from these kinds of incidences. I mean, it's, it is legislation. It's right in the Occupational Health and Safety Act. The concerning part for us is when these events happen, the agencies report them as, um, you know, not a, not a common occurrence, but a rare occurrence. In fact, they're misleading the public, and they're downplaying the severity of these attacks on our operators. Um, you know, in this last incident with Go Transit, the only reason that we found out at the union office on a national level and a local level, a local presence, is we saw the report from Hamilton in the media. The employer didn't even have the wherewithal to inform the union that one of their members was brutally assaulted. They downplayed the situation. You know, I just came from a very tragic event two months ago in Tampa, Florida, where one of our operators was murdered, had his throat slashed in the line of duty while he was operating a bus. Uh, and these things are so highly underreported, and agencies are not taking them as serious as they should be. Why aren't they reporting them? Is, 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 well, they don't want the bad publicity? Is that what this is all about? 
Well, listen, I think it's about it's it could be the the bad publicity, but quite frankly, you know, they downplayed as to an inherent risk of doing the job. I mean, if you see the media release from Metrolinx, the only comment that we hear of Metrolinx representative is, "Well, he's such a great employee and he's such a great person." Let's talk about the severity of the attack. Uh, and, and so, you know, they downplay it because they don't want to bring it to the limelight. And quite frankly, they need they know that in order to rectify this, they're going to need millions of dollars to, you know, protect the operators, whether it's uh, ergonomic development of the driver compartment area or safety barriers and shields, something we've been calling for, or more visibility by, you know, police officers and transit enforcement people. Well, we see that, uh, obviously, if we're talking about uh, trains, for instance, you know, from city to city. Uh, yeah. there's, there's a conductor. You'll see somebody there who's kind of keeping an eye on things. Uh, and, and I want to maybe use a parallel here, if I could, John, because we had sure. problems in, in, in just about every city, of course, with the, the taxi industry and people that were being assaulted, robbed, some of them physically, some of them being shot. And as you say, weapons were being used. Uh, and, and at the insistence of that industry, finally, a number of municipalities, and Hamilton was one of them, adopted some different measures. And so did the industry. You know, the warning lights, if you see this light flashing, call 911. Uh, as you say, sometimes there are barriers. Is it about time we have that discussion with, uh, with transit operators as well? Absolutely. We need to have that discussion, but not limited to just the transit operators. We need the authorities, and we need all levels of government. Let me put this, let me put this parallel to you. When politicians walk into any legislature across this country, whether it's provincially or federally, they walk in there knowing that they're going to go home safe every day. They have to go through metal detectors. They have to go through safety protocols um, so that they're protected. We move 160 million rides a month in this country. It's time for every level of government and agency to step up to protect its workers. I mean, by definition... (laughs) Uh, the operator has his back to everybody who's on that uh, that bus, uh, so you can't really see. I've obviously there's a rearview mirror, but uh, you know you're supposed to be paying attention to the road too. It's uh, virtually impossible to to be somebody who's going to be able to keep an eye on things behind you and at the same time drive the bus and then worried about what could happen with any altercation. And uh, uh, you must have dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds, of stories of operators that are finding themselves in a situation like that. Uh, sometimes. Uh, as I can still remember one story, I had uh, a bus driver I had on the program a couple of months ago, John, uh, said he stopped the bus and asked the guy to get off. Well, if they don't get off, you've got a confrontation. Then what do you do? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming drivers are not trained uh, on how to handle physical confrontations. So so one of the things that we've also asked for uh, in this Transit Operator and Pedestrian Protection Act is, of course, training for our operators and de-escalation techniques. We need to pre- prepare our people for every situation or every possible situation and how to de-escalate that. We need panic buttons on buses so that they can uh, alert the authorities immediately. Some agencies have them, not all. We need to put every reasonable measure in place to protect our frontline operators and the passengers. Well, yeah, and that relates to the second story that we were talking about here, the Globe and Mail uh, story that talked about what they say is 4,000 or more uh, assaults that have occurred, many of them sexual assaults. Uh, and I've heard those stories, uh, even on GO trains, on, on GO buses, uh, all over the place. Uh, security is becoming a problem when it comes to public transit. I mean, uh, you know, we were just talking in the last hour on the program here about how governments at all levels now are trying to encourage us to use public transit more. And I understand that. There's merit in that whole idea. But with that uh, comes the possibility of increased danger. 
not just on the road itself, but we're talking inside the vehicle itself. And we've seen too many examples of that. And I can't understand why elected officials aren't paying attention to it. Well, and to complicate the matter, we're seeing transit cuts right across uh, this province and every province in Canada. Uh, and, you know, the politicians are saying we need to cut costs, and Metrolinx announced that they're going to stop subsidizing fares and so on and so forth. Well, you know, raise, rising fares, cuts to operational budgets, lack of federal funding are all creating, you know, the optimum uh, conditions for this kind of stuff to be festered. You know, people are frustrated. If the bus is late, if the bus is, is full, and if they're paying high fares, people are getting upset. And, you know, this is a breeding ground for these kind of conditions. So we need to sit down, figure this out. We need dedicated operational funding, not only to provide the service, but to pro- protect the passengers and our operators. Well, and, and sadly, they're the lightning rod for a lot of that discontent. Uh, you know, if bus fares go up, as you say, you know, invariably, who do they yell at? They hate the driver, as if the driver had anything to do with it. Uh, but the, but right. they, you're the, that's the only representative there, so, he, you know, he or she is going to get an earful, or worse. Absolutely. And, you know, they're the frontline, most visible people when it comes to the transit industry, and they're the ones that are going to take the brunt of um, all of these variables in terms of lack of, you know, dedicated operational funding or delays or so on and so forth. Uh, this is a sad commentary here about the inaction. John, I wanted you to address this. Uh, statistics indicate that the, the majority of people that use public transit, we're talking specifically buses now, are, are female. Uh, many of them, not all of them, but they, they tend to off also the low income. I mean, let's face it, if you can afford a car, a lot of people buy cars. Some not doing that now, but uh, th- there's a segment of society here that's, that use public transit more than others. And I, 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 they have to be vocal about this, too. I mean, if you don't feel safe or you don't feel safe if your, your son or your daughter is riding public transit on a regular basis, somebody's got to speak up and represent these people. Right. So, I mean, look. Um, you know, there may be some truth in that, but we encourage all riders, it doesn't matter where you are in terms of your finances, to use public transit. It is a green choice. It, it, is, a, um, it is an alternative to the climate change crisis. So we need to do better at promoting public transit, but we need to promote safe public transit. You know, if you look at, in Western Canada today, um, there was a report about missing and murdered Indigenous women not being able to have safe, reliable bus services um, in Western Canada. And so, you know, that complicates the matter. So all of this is part and partial of not investing enough in public transit. Where are we going with this? Are we going to get to the point where there's going to have to be marshals on these? I mean, they do that on, on some airlines now because they were concerned about safety and security. Uh, and and so obviously there were people there that are patrolling, and that besides that, obviously in an airplane you've got other staff that are there too. There, you know, there, there are people that are looking after passengers and keeping an eye on things. Uh, but the driver, the operator on a bus is there all by themselves. There's nobody else. There's no backup. There's no support there. And and even if you've got a, a warning light or as you say a panic button that's going to be hit, the, the, there's a response time that's at play here too. I mean, you know, these things happen in seconds, and I'm pretty sure that's what happened with this go driver. Yeah. So look. I think a, a very first good step, um, and it's not, it's not going to be the thing that's going to fix everything, but we need to start getting protection for these operators. Again, ergonomic development of the driver compartment areas, driver shields, de-escalation techniques, um, and uh, how to deal with these issues, and then put more, more troops on the ground 
uh, and have more visibility. You know, you can walk through stations now where there is no staff because they've eliminated through through uh, either privatization or technological change. There used to be fare collectors in every in every station. Um, now it's all automated, so that means there's less people on the ground. Uh, and so the visibility thing, um, or the lack of visibility, pardon me, then becomes a breeding ground for this kind of stuff. It's easy. Well, and when there have been problems in the past, for instance, there were a number of robberies in, you know, in all transit systems, you know, especially late at night, there's nobody else on the bus. Uh, they took measures to fix that, didn't they? I mean, now nobody handles money. The driver doesn't handle money. Uh, you know, the, there's no access to any of that cash, and, and obviously that's had an impact. So they're, they're okay about the money aspect of it, but what about the human cost of, of, of what's going on with these situations? That's got to be addressed. You know, the most disturbing part of this whole, um, it, it doesn't matter who the operator is, um, when we found out, we, we traveled to Hamilton to go see our operator in the hospital. Um, you know, this is a 73-year-old man who loves his work. He started in the mid-70s with the Transit Authority. He's worked, you know, 35-plus years. And his first comment to me was, maybe I need to retire. It shouldn't take this kind of incident to force someone to retire. This is a life-changing event. Um, I hope he recovers well, but he has a long road ahead of him. Mm-hmm. No one deserves it, uh, and no one deserves it after putting and committing that kind of time into into moving people across this city or country. Um, it really is an atrocity against work uh, against the transit industry and the transit workers, and the agencies and governments need to step up to the plate. And ATU Canada is prepared to sit down and work these things out and help formulate legislation. We want to work with the stakeholders and make this right and make it safe for our, our operators and for our passengers. So you've obviously given this a lot of thought. You've already got some, some ideas about what can be done here. Is anybody listening at, in government? Well, so, um, you know, look, we just started this initiative. It's been an ongoing initiative for years and years and years, um, but really hadn't picked up some momentum. Um, but more recently, we are pushing very, very hard and fast to get something done. We're going into a federal election cycle. We will be lobbying every politician to have this dialogue. This is not a partisan issue when it comes to politics. Any politician or any candidate running for for any office should be embracing this kind of protection for working class people. We'll be watching. Uh, John, stay in touch with us, and uh, we'll uh, certainly hope for the best and speedy recovery for the driver who was impacted by this, and uh, hopefully we can do something about reducing these numbers. Thanks so much for the time today, John. Thank you so much. John uh, Donano, of course, who is the uh, ATU president, uh, the Canadian national president, uh, echoing the uh, concerns, I think, of uh, well, drivers that we've heard here in, uh, from the HSR as well. Yeah, it, it, You've got to do something about safety, public safety. And, and as for the other story... Over 4,000 people in a, in a four-year period. And, and again, you know, that's, that's only the ones that actually took the time to report these things. Many of them sexual assaults. Uh, the overwhelming majority were men against women on these buses. The people that run these authorities, whether it's the HSR, the TTC, Go Transit, whatever it is, have got to do something about that. This is a matter of public safety now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.